Suburban Eastern Australia, an environment that has, over time, evolved some extraordinarily unique groups of Homo sapiens. But today, we observe a small tribe akin to a group of meerkats that gather together atop a small mound to watch, question, and discuss the current events of their city, their country, and their world at large. Let's listen keenly and observe this group fondly known as the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. You guys are interrupting a perfectly good private argument that we were just having prior to going live. And we thought, oh, what the heck? We've just pressed the live button and, and just keep arguing. So yeah. You're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Joe was against me. Velvet Glove was against me. Anyway, well, this is a podcast. Got a, you've got a wrong position. Sorry, <laughs> you know. This is a podcast where we talk about news and politics, sex and religion, and we've been doing it for eight years. Bloody exactly hell. today, Scott. Fourth of July, eight years ago, you and I started. There we go. Holy yeah, shit. indeed. I'm Trevor, aka the Iron Fist. With me. As always, Scott the Velvet Glove. G'day, Trevor. G'day, Joe. G'day, listeners. I hope you're all well. And Joe, the tech guy who's got bits and pieces of skin that has been removed from him by dry ice. How are you, Joe? Even Neil. Mm. His skin doctor got a little bit excited and just started dropping dry ice everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So here we are, eight years later. You might be hoping that I've gone through all of the old episodes and extracted highlights and I've put them in some sort of clever montage for you. Nope. <laughs> that, that hasn't happened. But uh, we can probably pretty much conduct a normal podcast. Hello to Bromman in the chat room. If you're in the chat room, say hello. Yeah. So is that logo in the wrong place, Joe? Is that normally there like that? Put, maybe I'll take it off, it. actually. Maybe I'll take that logo off. That way... See the chat. All right. What's on the agenda? Let me see. What have I got on the agenda for tonight? We're going to talk about briefly what's happened in the last two weeks because it has been two weeks. Essential poll on the Greens. Some more polling on The Voice, which is very interesting as to how that's going. Some polling on Donald Trump. Talking about Gladys Berejiklian. Is she corrupt? I mentioned Mexico the other day in relation to the war with the Americans. It looks like that might be repeated sooner rather than later. And affirmative action in USA universities and the Calvary Hospital in the ACT. And maybe Seymour Hirsch on Prigozhin and that attempted coup in Russia. So see where Was we end up. Was it actually an attempted coup or not? Well... See where we end up. Joe's had to log out. He'll log back in. Don't know what's happened mm. to Joe. So thanks, Bromman, for the best wishes. Yes, eight years, Scott. I was just reflecting a little bit on eight years. I sort of went through some of the episode names that I've used over the last few hundred. And one thing that struck me, Scott, was yeah, just picking out major. About submarines. Yeah, submarines are in there, of course. Major yeah. themes, though, were that whole... Ruddock Report, Religious Discrimination Bill, really, you know, we had Turnbull agreed to the Ruddock Report in order to placate nutbags in the Liberal Party. 
<clears throat> and then that then led to the religious discrimination bill, Israel Falau, and we've still got Labor talking about religious discrimination bill. That's kind of been one of the more dominant themes of the last eight years that we could have avoided if we hadn't had a Ruddock inquiry in the first place brought about by those guys. Yep. Well, it's the fault of the damn gays. Demanding yeah, equality. Yeah, that was it. That's right. You're right. And it came because it was to placate the right wing because of the marriage equality. Correct. So all of that we can blame on Scott and his mates demanding mm -hmm. equality. So, yeah. So that a key theme that we had over the last eight years. Another one would have been sort of libertarian arguments that I had with Paul. They went on a lot about what people could do, what were the rights of the individual versus the rights of the community. And they're continuing ones today in many respects on different things. Israel Falau, of course, how could one footballer create so much content for a podcast? But he did. We've had over that time, Scott, the obvious takeover of the Liberal Party by the Christian radicals following USA sort of game plan for doing that, following the Republican example. That's just become increasingly obvious over these past few years. And I guess from eight years ago, the real dire straits of the Liberal Party in terms of the calibre of candidate that's there and is likely to come in the future is it's, it's probably the one of the biggest things in politics in Australia in the last eight years, do you think? Yep, absolutely. Mm. And they are looking increasingly sick. Mm. And it seems to be a position they can't recover from. It's no. all right. They, they've got the focus on the uh, yeah, their eyes on the ball. <laughs> you saw the uh, what the, the LNP are going to do in Queensland if they get power? No. They're, they're going to look for uh, all the sexually explicit material that's being given to children. Oh, for God's sake. Oh, good. Bibles. Yes. Right. <laughs> Except that. Except for that. Yeah. You know... Did they I mean, really I say that? I swear they've mm -hmm. just been through the Republican Twitter. They, they really said that? Yeah. Oh, had I missed that? Okay. Send me the link. I want to see that one. Was it from Chris Afelli or from, from one of the I, I had a crazier... photo. It had a photo of Mr Potato Head next to it, so I've no idea. Okay. Yeah. I assume you mean Dutton when you call him Potato Head, do you? Yeah. I, I, I wouldn't give him a proper name. He doesn't deserve it. Hmm. Right. And one of the highlights, I guess, over this time was the voluntary sister dying legislation mm. and how that progressed from not existing to now in place and actually up and running. And what a great campaign that was, the people behind it. So that would be the highlight, I'd say, of the last eight years in terms of things that have happened politics-wise mm. amongst a lot of lowlights. It's a small bar, a small bar to jump over. But voluntary sister Dyer did it with ease. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, Deep Throat really needs to be congratulated for that because, uh, you know, the, that does. whole thing dying with Dignity Queensland, they did a brilliant job. Mm. So there we go. That's the reflections on eight years. We'll keep going. Another eight or 16. See how we go. <laughs> We're Jesus, up to 389. We'll 58 by then. Yeah. We've averaged. Uh, pretty much only missing about three episodes per year on average, although I'd say the average is 
been affected by this last year. I've missed more than most. But anyway, it's not bad going. So, all right. It's been two weeks. A few things have happened since then. I saw a Twitter, a tweet by somebody who, because we had the Russian coup and the, and the submarine that was around the Titanic area there, and the tweet was, if I'd have known this entire week would be a throwback to the 1910s, I would have worn a bigger hat. Rich people dying on the Titanic, uprising in Russia. If someone launches a Zeppelin, I am buying a hobble skirt, said this person. Not a bad line. So Scott, Joe, Russian coup, that was a pretty quick one, over and done with. Didn't go far. Prigozhin is now banished to Belarus and is, with the blessing of Putin, just going to see out his days over there. Thoughts on that whole shenanigans? Oh, the whole, the the very vocal comments up front about how Putin was being misled by Shugai and whoever the other one, the Minister of Defence and the Chief of the Army, who had their own private reasons for wanting to invade Ukraine and make it their own personal fiefdom, and, and that Putin had been misled, that there weren't Nazis there, that it really wasn't a threat, NATO wasn't a threat, that it was all just all about personal gains and privilege. That's what Prigozhin was saying. That's what Prigozhin was saying. Right. And then invaded the, sorry, one, well, captured. Captured the largest city since the invasion began, mm. which just happened to be a Russian city, <laughs> before heading north on the highway, about 700 kilometres of the 1,000 kilometres, whilst shooting down. And, and, yeah, the whole forgiveness, the pardons for them, is a bit strange. They shot down at least four or five military helicopters mm. with all on board lost and also a mobile, an airborne command centre with, I think, a lieutenant general or a fairly high-ranking officer on board. So they actually took out a fair number of highly skilled Air Force pilots mm-hmm. and they've just been let off. Which Seems is strange. Yeah, and, and people are saying, yeah, whether or not it seemed like a smart move, the be, being a dictator, you have to be all about the image you present and his image is of a person who is not a strong man. Uh, Putin's image? Or Putin's that, image right. has been severely weakened because having gone on TV and said, these are traitors, they're going to pay for this, He's mm. then gone, no, no, off you go. Mm. Nothing further to be had. Mm. Which, you know, th- this was a serious threat to his power and he's just accepted it. Mm. So I- there's a, a lot of questions. Look, mm. the U- Ukraine must be laughing about this. At the very least, there's a lot of questions being asked about how did they get so far. That's going to pull some troops, real troops, back into Russia to prevent any other armed forces doing that. There are a lot of private military companies that are operating in Russia Mm. that have been given heavy weapons by the Russian military that in theory could do... I mean, obviously, this was the biggest, but there are others out there. And the question is, what's to stop one of those doing it? Mm. Or even the army? I didn't read about the four aircraft being shot down. When did you read that? What are you reading to get all this information? Uh, this this was Perron's YouTube channel, who is a military right. analyst. Yep. 
But again, he works with open source Intel, so this is stuff that is being openly reported. Mm. It's generally stuff that is verifiable, so it's yep. not speculation. Okay. So, um, that's a, so that's sort of a view that Putin's in trouble, it was something out of hand, and for one reason or another, perhaps because of weakness, Putin is letting him go because he can't really do anything well, strong. Well, there was a Wall Street Journal or... There was a US video I watched just before that happened, actually, about yeah. Wagner and saying where, yeah, where did they come from? And realistically, they have been going into third world countries that are politically unstable but have huge mineral resources mm-hmm. and providing stability in exchange for mineral resources. And they have been providing the hard cash that Russia hasn't been able to get since the sanctions have been in place. So hang on, is this from the same YouTube guy? No, this is a this was one of the US ones. Right. Cuz I don't think Russia's had trouble getting getting paid for its oil like but, India but, and the rest of the the, the non but, but they also aligned countries. They sort of gold mines in Africa, they own extra oil production facilities in the Middle East. Right. Yeah, I think they own a third of Syria's oil wells or something. Because my understanding is the Russian economy is doing fine. Thank you very much. I don't um, think they need the Wagner Group's cash from African mines. The, the, to the, the Wagner Group is bringing in a large amount of money. So one wonders how much of that was heading in Putin's direction and might have suffered him. Mm. Okay. That's one view. I'll give a counter view. Mm-hmm. I'll just jump to it. So Seymour Hirsch, dear listener, was the guy who broke the story on the Nord Stream pipeline being blown up by Americans. Americans. Yeah. <clears throat> so well-respected journalist in that regard. So here's from his substack on this whole thing. So what he says is, so below is a look at what was really going on that was provided to me by a knowledgeable source in the American intelligence community, an unnamed source, speaking to telling Seymour Hirsch stuff. He, and this source is saying, I thought I might clear some of the smoke. First and most importantly, Putin is now in a much stronger position. We realised as early as January 2023 that a showdown between the generals backed by Putin and Prigozhin backed by anti-Russian extremists was inevitable. The age-old conflict between the special war fighters and a large, slow, clumsy, unimaginative regular army. The army always wins because they own the peripheral assets that make victory, either offensive or defensive, possible. Most importantly, they control logistics. When the overall strategy is offensive, big army tolerates their hubris and public chest thumping because the special forces are willing to take high risk and pay a high price. Wagner members were the spearhead of the original Russian-Ukraine offensive. They were the little green men. When the offensive grew into an all-out attack... Wagner continued to assist but reluctantly had to take a back seat in the period of instability and readjustment that followed. Prigozhin and Wagner, as the worst of special forces, took the limelight and took the credit for stopping the hated Ukrainians. The press gobbled it up. Meanwhile, the big army and Putin slowly changed their strategy from offensive conquest of greater Ukraine to defence of what they already had, Prigozhin refused to accept the change, continued on the offensive against Bakhmut, 
Therein lies the rub. Rather than create a public crisis and a court-martial, Moscow simply withheld the resources and let Prigozhin use up his manpower and firepower reserves, dooming him to a stand-down. He is, after all, no matter how cunning financially, an ex-hot-dog cart owner with no political or military accomplishments. And is saying that Wagner was being cycled out of the Bakhmut front over the past three months and sent to abandoned barracks for demobilisation. And Putin finally backed the army who let Prigozhin make a fool of himself and now disappear into ignominy, all without raising a sweat militarily or causing Putin to face a political standoff with the fundamentalists who were ardent Prigozhin admirers. Pretty shrewd. And now the current battlefield statistics were shared with me. I learned that in the first two weeks of the operation, the Ukraine military seized only 44 square miles of territory previously held by the Russian army, much of it open land. So basically the so-called counteroffensive not going so well. So there you go. There's two versions of, the, of what's happening in Russia. Who knows where the truth actually lies? It could be in the middle. It could be somewhere way off you know, another area. Will we ever know? I don't know. Yeah, I, I think we're ever going to know the truth. The the military gains of last year were unusual, and we saw these huge advances through large areas of eastern Ukraine. But realistically, they were on the back of months and months of fighting. So for this new attack to have got nowhere in the first you know, couple of months is not unexpected. Uh, I, I think we, the 24-hour news cycle, we're used to seeing, waking up and seeing a new place taken every day, and that just isn't the norm. Mm. Those are outliers. Mm. Well, we'll see how it goes. Right. We've got some polls, lots of interesting polls to talk about in this episode, closer to home after that diversion. So we've got Ukrainians and polls. <laughs> boom, boom. Thanks, Joe. Right. Here's a chart on the screen for those who are watching the video or we will talk about it for those simply watching at home. And what we've got is greens <clears throat> and independent. Which of the following best applies to you? And what we're looking at here is the dark red on the right-hand side, which is I've never given my first preference to the greens or an independent candidate and don't think I ever will. And the interesting part of that is young people, 18 to 34, only 21% would say that. Old people, 55 plus, 62% would say that, that they've never given a preference to a Green or an Independent and don't think they ever will. So Not increasingly... Preference, first preference. Yes, my first preference, yep. So... Stark divide again, based on age. There's a real age difference in politics in Australia, real age gap, I think, on lots of things. So, And what so, they're actually finding is that they're not becoming more conservative as they get older. Mm. You know, so there was a podcast I was listening to just recently. It might have been 7am. They were saying that this is bad news for the coalition because then as the population ages and that type of thing, they're not getting more conservative. Yes. 
it was normal to see people swap from being Labor to Liberal as they aged. Yes. But yeah, they're not seeing the same swap at the same age points like be, they used Being to. young and angry and wanting against the status quo when, you, when you've got nothing to lose, but when you've got something to lose, yes. you want to keep what you've got. And the problem That's is exactly. people aren't getting something that they, that they then fear losing because the things are so bad for the middle classes and the middle, you know, that sort of age group to, to 40, 45s or whatever, so many renters amongst them. So, so anyway... In terms of people for a first preference for the Greens, older people, 55 plus, 62%. No way, never. Only 20% of young, 21% of young people would say that. And then how does that break down in terms of... Well, young people have also got more elections to vote in. They've got longer to change their minds. Yes, but they're talking about a longer period there. Yes, that's true. That is true. Well, what have I got here? How would that pan out in terms of gender? No, sorry, on voting preference. Labor voters, 40% of them would say that, that they've never given first preference to Greens or Independent and don't think they ever will. 66% of Coalition would say that. How many Greens voters, though? Doesn't say, does it? No. <laughs> For good reason. And the other one I think coming up is on... Oh, I must have missed the one on gender. There's one on gender. Again, females more likely to vote Green men less likely to. Don't know what happened to that. So so that was just in terms of the Greens and how they're travelling and just this age divide in politics. Really, if you, if you were given a room full of people and you're having to quickly categorise them into likely voting patterns... And you knew nothing about people, but you're only allowed to ask, say, a few quick, a few key questions, except who you're going to vote for at the next election. Like you're not allowed to ask the easy one, but you're allowed to ask them about their lives and stuff. One of the first questions you'd ask would just be, "How old are you?" And that would be indicating a lot of politics right there in that question as to as to how old you are, and then. Do you live in an inner city urban environment or are you in a outer suburb regional environment? That will tell you a lot. Are you I male think, or female? I'll I tell you the outer suburbs are more conservative than the regions, actually. Yes, like Queensland. Yeah. More conservative than the regional Queenslands? Anyway, what no, age are you? Might be my first question. Where do you live and what gender are you? And maybe if you get a fourth question, your education level, but, you know, those first three are really telling you a lot about people. Uh, just, just ask them if they're cisgender. That tells you a lot yeah. about people. <laughs> just their response to that. Yes. Are you, are you woke? Yeah. So, so, yes, there we go. That's the Greens. Scott, you're still in the category that you'd never give them first preference and... You're unlikely. You haven't, and you're unlikely to in the future. Would that be right? Well, that's right. That's the, yes. the Greens. The independents I would actually consider casting a vote for them. There you go. Yeah, a teal independent or something like that. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Right. The voice is is becoming quite interesting. So polls are really turning on the voice now. So got this one from my son. Some snapshot. So. News poll came out with some polling on The Voice. Now, just remember, 
only three of six states need to vote no for it to get blocked. So at the moment, we've got Victoria and New South Wales are a relatively strong yes vote. And according to the latest news poll figure, we had Victoria, yes, 48, no, 41. New South Wales, yes, 46, no, 41. So fairly strong in Victoria and New South Wales. But South Australia, yes, 45. Actually, I'll put that up on the screen. Might as well do that. South Australia was yes, 45, no, 46. Tasmania, yes, 43, no, 48. Queensland, yes, 40, no, 54. And Western Australia, yes, 39, no, 52. We don't have the territory, though. So Yeah, because they don't get – they just go into the total. Okay. You don't actually – you don't actually – because they're no longer – because they're not states, you don't actually count them into that second majority. Right. Mm. So on that – over the overall figure from news poll, so the so the no you know overall the no vote took the lead forty seven to forty three. Previously in the same poll, the yes was leading forty six to forty three. So that's a change in news poll, and it's sort of been reflected in in another one as well. Resolve as well. So just read the section that says. That's the first lead for the no campaign in a news poll. Resolve polling had the first lead for a no in any national poll two weeks ago. Now, we, dear listener, have regularly been providing the essentials sort of polling on this, and it's been around the 60% yes, 40% no. And according to this article in The Conversation, that may reflect some sampling issues. And according to this article in the conversation, news poll and resolve have far better track records at elections than essential. So the support for the voice has crashed since April. And based on those figures... Who knew that there were that many Nazis in Australia? Well, do you have to be a Nazi to vote? No. Absolutely. No, you don't. I'm sure the Yes campaign will tell us all that we have to be Nazis if we're voting no. Just racist. Yeah. That's Interesting. The whole point. Now, Brian was telling me about something that was written by some former politician, and he reckons that you are beginning to see the basket of deplorables argument being displayed by the yes vote. Yes. Mm. Yeah. It, the criticism of people who are wanting to vote no as being racist assholes is just... Mm-hmm hardening their resolve along those lines. So happened with Brexit as well. Yeah. Exactly. So I wouldn't want to have a lot of money hunting that the yes vote's going to get up. I would be very worried about my bet if that was the case. It's going to be very interesting how it all pans out. Very interesting. If you were to look at those numbers right now, it looks like it's lost. Hmm. And uh, given that's the direction and the momentum, we'll see. Very it interesting makes, result. It makes me wonder why he's so hell-bent on having it. You know, wow. it's one of those things. It may well have been an election commitment, but if the polls aren't aren't backing you and that type of thing, if the opposition's not backing you, then you've actually got to say, well, 
Oh, was this it was it a core commitment? Sorry, was it core or non-core? That's the question. It was probably a core commitment because he made a hell of a big deal about it on the election right. night. Hmm. I mean, if it if it goes down and fails, is that really going to be seen as something a failure that attaches to Albanese and Labor? Potentially. He, I was going to say he remembers the Republican. Hmm. Does anyone attach it to the the prime minister at the time? Yeah, I Does think it it's possible. I think it's quite possible for for this vote to fail and not really cause Albanese a lot of damage. I think people would take the view there was such a demand for this, you know, referendum that he put it up there, and then ultimately it's up to everyone else to decide what to do. Mm. I think you can get by without a lot of political damage to it, but we'll soon, you know, we'll find out. But yeah, apparently it's in October. Mm. Yeah, there was a question somebody asked: was is it going to be mandatory? Well, I thought it would be compulsory voting. For it is a compulsory. It, it is compulsory to vote. You know, the only reason that the plebiscite wasn't compulsory is because it wasn't actually governed by the. Electoral Commission, it was done via the ABS, so it was just a grown-up opinion poll. Mm. Right. Mm. Okay, so very interesting polls on that one. Now, in America, they have a thing called 538 is this group, and what they do is they grab a bunch of polls and amalgamate the results of multiple polls to try and get a, a, a poll of polls. <laughs> If you like, 538, that's what their job is. And they've been looking at Donald Trump and how he's going in terms of the Republican nomination and then how he would go against Joe Biden. And remembering, dear listener, it's hard to imagine a political candidate having worse press than what Donald Trump has had. And you know where I'm heading with this. It's, it's simply Teflon-coated in that this mud refuses to stick. Uh, the, the problem is he gets any press. Surely if Jack the Ripper got press, though, it would have been that you're a bad person and we don't I, throw you in jail. We want to throw you in jail. But... I mean, Hitler was <laughs> Time Magazine's Man of the Year. Yeah. Just because he, he got press doesn't mean that you're a good person. Honestly, Trump could walk down Fifth Avenue and just oh, yeah. start shooting people. And, and if he was arrested, people would say that it was a setup. Correct. And his, his numbers would jump. He would actually get a boost in the polls. Yep. Here we are with Trump in terms of the Republican nomination, and he is way ahead of DeSantis. So at the moment, somewhere around... 51%, what is he, 50, Trump leads, 53.1%. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis on 21.2 and nobody else is above six. So when it comes to who the, the nominee is going to be for the Republican Party at the next presidential election, if he doesn't die beforehand, it's going to be Trump. Well, DeSantis is a non-entity. Yeah. And the theocrats are beholden to Trump because he's given them 
uh, three Supreme Court justices mm. who proceeded to do the most radical reform. Yeah, no, no, well, none of these reformist judges. Oh, wait, they are, aren't they? You're just reforming the wrong way. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, interestingly enough, the Republican primary vote has dropped in many states because of abortion. Right. Well, we'll get on to how he would fare against Biden. Yes. For example. But just before we get to that, if Trump is convicted at trial before the November 2024 election, mm -hmm. he can still run for president? Yes. There's actually a precedent for that where somebody did do that before, got 3% of the vote. There, there is a question as to how Secret Service would look after him in prison. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't that be fascinating? Mm-hmm. Fascinating how yeah, that would pan out. Indeed. In Australia, Section 44 of the Constitution disqualifies anyone under sentence or subject to the sentence for a crime with a prison sentence of one year or longer from serving in federal parliament, but there is no US equivalent. And, of course, if Trump were elected president from prison, he could potentially pardon himself. <clears throat> Beautiful world we live in. Yeah. Um, can you pardon yourself? I didn't think you could. Mm, well, there was that argument and that type of thing that was being brought up last time. They were mm -hmm. saying that there was some constitutional experts were saying that he could actually go in and pardon himself. Others were saying he couldn't. I tell you what, if it goes to the Supreme Court to decide if he can, oh, that's true. Would, be able to I think you'll himself. find I think you'll find he can. Mm. Oh. Even, even if there's a specific section in the Constitution that says the president cannot pardon himself, they'll read that some way to yes. find that he can. So the original intention of the founders was... Yes. Indeed. Thinking about a Donald Trump in the future, yeah. Okay, so let's then move to how he's going against Joe Biden. And, oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. So on the screen, and perhaps appearing on your screen, dear listener, in your app because I go to the effort of putting these on the chapter images, so hopefully it appears. There's a poll of polls. There's seven of them. Big Village, Harris Havard, sorry, Harris Harvard, Morning Consult, Premise, Quinnipiac, Redfield and Wilton, and YouGov slash The Economist. And on average, before he was indicted for these mm, issues regarding keeping secret documents in toilets. Before that, Biden was Trump was leading 42.9 to Biden 42.3. And after the indictment, the average of all those polls shows that Trump is still leading 42.6 to 41.4. So Trump's Approval dropped marginally, but Biden's dropped, Biden's dropped even more. So according to the poll of polls, Trump would win an election against Joe Biden. And the indictment has not shifted that uh, unfavourably at all. I don't Extraordinary. understand that. Extraordinary. 
how the hell could you know how the hell could anyone in the US actually think to themselves that this man's worth a vote? Well, the the theocrats think he is because he's given the Supreme Court. Yeah. There's a lot of people who watch Fox News and buy into the everything that Biden does is bad. Mm. There's a lot of people who are never Democrats. There's just a lot of crazy, uneducated people who think very tribally, who have been brainwashed by a poisonous Murdoch propaganda outfit, and and here we are. It's not untrue over here. Mm. We just haven't quite got to that point just yet. Thank goodness. (laughs) Give us time. Surely they must be looking for someone else other than Donald Trump. I, I would say the smart money is, but I think, the problem is the Republicans, and there are some never-Trumpers in the Republicans, but he's their best chance of winning. He's a populist. He will say whatever he needs to say at the time. These people are Pro- so promise- credulous. They'll just believe anything. Promises do not matter to him. Mm. He will stand up and say whatever it takes to get their vote. It is extraordinary. It is extraordinary times after all that. So, so there you go. If you got the other thing, of course, is in the Democrat pre-selection, Biden is a long way ahead of the next candidate, Robert Kennedy Jr. Thank God for that. Mm. But and increasingly, you're seeing stuff about Robert Kennedy Jr. about how crazy that guy is. He is one crazy dude. Any of us who are in the skeptic community have known for a long time how crazy he is. Mm. He's only a heartbeat away from being the leader, leading contender. I mean, if Biden has a heart attack or a stroke or some other incapacitating event, then because this guy's been running the you know, he's in the box seat, isn't he? Like, okay, he's a long way from Kamala being the leader Harris now. Would end up, Kamala Harris would, would get the job if Biden was actually to die. And then after that, then they wouldn't actually, well, you'd assume that they wouldn't kick her out for him. Yeah, I know. No, anything, look at these figures. Anything's possible, isn't it? Anyway, yeah, just just saying we could end up with a presidential election with Robert. With, with an anti-vaxxer and an anti-vaxxer. Against, against Trump. That could be the next US election. Mm. And people think that that country can continue to put up a fight against China. Good luck. Right. Gladys Berejiklian had an ICAC report come out and uh, 700 pages. Oh, basically, in an extraordinary report released today, the Independent Commission Against Corruption found former New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian has taken, had taken steps to award government grants in a desire on her part to maintain or advance her relationship with former state MP Daryl Maguire. And the Commission faulted her for not disclosing her relationship and for failing to report any suspicions she had about Maguire's activities and they called it grave misconduct. But not criminal misconduct. No. And that is what the Conservative commentators and Murdoch press 
have latched onto to say, mm-hmm. well, it wasn't criminal, so it's all okay. And <clears throat> just reading from a piece that said the reason why it wasn't criminal, this simply reflects the difference between the statutory definition of corrupt conduct and specific criminal acts. The statutory definition of corrupt conduct embraces a wide range of conduct that might not be criminal. Failure to reveal conflicts of interest is one. Pork barrelling is another. On the ICAC's findings, Barry Jicklian's conduct fell well short of a proper discharge of her public duties but was not criminal. So, yeah, that's how that all panned out. Pretty damning report as to her conduct, just not criminal. What did Peter Dutton have to say about all of that? Oh, here we go. <clears throat> it's been a big week for Gladys Berejiklian as well, as we all know. Your reaction to the corruption findings? Well, Carla, in Gladys, I know somebody who is absolutely a wonderful person. She's first class, and what you see in public is, is what you get in private as well. She's just a very decent person. She chose uh, a bum, basically, and uh, he was a bad guy. And I think that she has, you know, paid a big price for that. She and, a good uh, woman her, her integrity is not in question. Man. She's not a corrupt person. That's not the person that I know, and I think she should hold her head high. She had a bad relationship, as everybody does, and I hope that... Pause for some reason in the middle of that, Joe. Sorry. Yeah, she chose a bum. There's mm. a bit of bad luck. Hey, we all do it, apparently. <sighs> she, she's only a simple woman. She couldn't be expected to know better. Unlucky it was a bloke who brought her down. Unlucky in love. Mm. It's one of those things I've never accepted that, you know, that she was unlucky in love. You know, you, you can look at that and that type of thing. You, you know, you listen to some of those some of those recordings of them on, on, their, on their telephone chats and you could think to yourself, okay, lady, you mightn't have been told that what he was actually doing, but you knew he was up to no good. Yeah, and he was pressuring her for favours and she was saying, yeah, all right. Just, look, I think we can rely on the Australian editorial to provide us with an unbiased assessment of the situation. And apparently it said, it smeared ICAC as being, quote, an unaccountable law unto itself. Of course it is. With, quote, little regard for proper process, end quote. It's public hearings as nothing but, quote, public shaming, and the investigation is nothing but a show trial. (laughs) Yeah. So, leader of the opposition and Australia's major newspaper, nothing to see here despite an ICAC, damning ICAC report and damning about the evidence she gave as well. That's the state of play in Australian politics at the moment, dear listener. I'm shocked that the Australian would say such a thing. Yes. Totally out of, out of character. Yeah. Probably somewhere on some panel show on the ABC they will repeat that and say, well, is that a fair assessment or not? Like they'll actually give mm. that some airtime probably. No, and then they'll have an LMP person in to say, of course, it was a fair assessment. Yes, and then they'll have one from you know, the other side and they'll have two sides the whole thing. 
That's what'll happen. Right. I mentioned just for the like I just dragged up an old article last time we spoke about the 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 war between America and Mexico. And just by coincidence, came across an article from David Frum in The Atlantic. So David Frum was, I think, a speechwriter for George W. Bush and conservative commentator, of course, writing in The Atlantic. And he says, actually, he's conservative, but he hates Trump. He's a never-Trumper, along those lines. War with Mexico? It's on the 2024 ballot, at least if you believe the campaign rhetoric of more and more Republican candidates. In January, two Republican House members introduced a bill to authorise the use of military force inside Mexico. I watched the documentary about the ex-military members who are doing cross-border raids against... The drug smugglers and right. the, and and also I think the people smugglers. Yes. So they're already doing cross border incursions, just sort not legal, unauthorized. Yeah. And so these two Republicans are saying, "Well, we need to write this into we need to do the right thing, and mm-hmm. write this into law that our forces can just enter Mexico and start doing whatever they need to do because, you know, it's the best place for us to do it." So these were not know-nothings from the fringe of the MAGA caucus. One was Dan Crenshaw of Texas, a former Navy SEAL who received a master's degree from Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. The other was Mike Walsh, Waltz of Florida, a former Green Beret who served as the counterterrorism advisor to Vice President Dick Cheney. Well, for a start, what are we doing? A former Navy SEAL and a former Green Beret really keen to pass laws authorising military action. Gee, what a surprise. Mm. Like if we elected Ben Robert Smith to Parliament and he suddenly wanted the SAS to be given extra powers to run around other countries, would we be surprised? No, I wouldn't be surprised. No. I'd be shocked. Yeah. Anyway, that was apropos Mexico. Raytheon, that's a company that provides military nasty stuff and aircraft stuff and a huge company. It's Mm. all sorts of government contracts, massive company. And when they're talking about the battle with China, the head of Raytheon had some stuff to say. Western manufacturers will be able to de-risk their operations in China but will find it impossible to cut ties completely with the country according to the head of one of the US largest aerospace and defence companies, Greg Hayes, chief executive of Raytheon, said the company had several thousand suppliers in China and decoupling is impossible, adding he believed this to be the case for everybody. So China is too strong, too well embedded, supplying too much essential stuff. It's going to be really hard. America's... Modus operandi in the past has been to cut countries off, sanction them. But the fact is that these big American companies like Raytheon need China. They can arm themselves China. They can feed themselves. They're, they're arming and feeding America. Well, they're arming America anyway. They've, they've run out of cards that they would normally play in this situation. It's game over, I think. Just a matter of watching it all happen. Anyway, that was interesting. Big US company. We can't decouple. 
Well, they can, but it would be too expensive. Yes. Because everyone was happy to rush everything overseas to a cheap provider. Yeah. Mm. And all of these companies all have little factories dotted all over America <laughs> and and they basically threaten the local congressman and say, well, if you don't do the right thing, I'm just going to pull my factory out and put it somewhere else and I'm going to blame you. So you better do the right thing. And so... In lots of parts of America, the only viable business is an arms manufacturing business that's been yeah. plonked there because of an arrangement between them and a local politician. Well, Musk moved Tesla mm. to Texas from California. There were a couple of others that did that mm. because they didn't like the way that California was being run, that, you know, poor people were actually being helped, whereas mm. Texas was every man for himself. Mm. Tesla's being made in China as well. Yes. Huge Tesla factory there. Mm. Also, final topic, another quick one. Affirmative action in USA universities. So there mm -hmm. recently in the last week was two rulings on related cases by the Chief Justice John Roberts in the Supreme Court, which basically are ending affirmative action in the US as it's currently known. So there were two cases Students for Fair Admissions versus basically Harvard College and Students for Fair Admissions versus the University of North Carolina. Both argued the use of race in college admissions should end, but for slightly different reasons. In the Harvard case, the plaintiffs claimed that the admissions practices of Harvard discriminated against Asian American applicants it by did. placing a cap on the number of admitted and we have talked about this in the past several times that if you just based it on a colorblind score, yeah. score that Asians Asian... were disproportionately represented mm. and basically Harvard didn't want a campus full of Asians and then penalized Asians in its admission process to mm -hmm. deduct points oh you're of Asian race we're going to take points off and make it harder for you to enter. And that process has been deemed unacceptable by the Supreme Court. And uh, in the North Carolina case, the plaintiffs asked the court to rule that universities can't use race as a factor in college admissions and must use a race-neutral approach. So the Supreme Court found that the practices of both colleges violated the Equal Protection Clause in the 14th Amendment. I quickly looked up the 14th Amendment and the last part of it says, nor shall any state deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. So that was the wording that Harvard, for example, was falling foul of. Now there is a confounder, mm -hmm. something called legacy admissions. Mm. So if one of your parents went to the college, you are automatically deemed eligible to get in. And historically, these were white-only colleges. Yes. And they're saying that of the legacy admissions, the vast majority of them are white. So are the legacy admissions now ruled invalid as well? No. <laughs> of course I'm... not. <laughs> really? Yes. Because but that would be denying equal protection for no, no. the non-legacy people. 
Correct, but it's not based on colour. It's based on whether or not your parents went, and that which was historically okay. was based on colour. Yes. It was historically go. white people got into the college. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There we go. There wouldn't be too many black kids relying on black parents having a tender heart. No, exactly. Mm-hmm. So I think if you strike down one, you have to strike down the other. You would have thought that it was unequal. Hmm. But there we go. So now. It's one of those things. And I heard this. What's the the West Wing? It was in there. Though, I was watching that. And there was a British there was a British diplomat and that sort of stuff who was lecturing the Americans. And he said, look, your, your original sin was slavery. Our original sin was, was Ireland. And he was just talking in both those terms. And he said, now, you're overcoming your original sin. We're still overcoming our original sin. Mm. Mm. Anyway, that was just something by the by. Mm-hmm. Just back to this decision in America, the decision might actually be popular. A poll designed to capture public opinion on major Supreme Court decisions this term found the strong majority of Americans agree, 74%, sorry, that public, 74%, and private, 69%, colleges and universities should not be able to use race as a factor in college admissions. So the Supreme Court is in line with public opinion. When they... When they adjust the polling by questions that remind respondents of the goal of affirmative action to increase the numbers of blacks, Hispanic and other unrepresented students on elite campuses, it tends to generate more support, but people don't think minority groups should be given special preferences. And guess what? I've got a little graph for that one, I think. A bit of luck. Here it is. So... Half of US adults disapprove of selective colleges considering race and ethnicity and admissions, while a third approve and a fair number of not sures. So the total is 50 disapprove of considering race and ethnicity, 33% approve and 16% not sure. Now, when you break that up, guess what? Amongst black adults, 47% in favour of taking race into account, 29% against. Hispanic, it's split, 39-39. In the Hispanic community where this law would actually favour them, presumably, 39-4, 39 against. Asians, guess what? They've seen what's happened in Harvard and they don't like it. Mm. 52% are against factoring in race and only 37% are in favour. And then, of course, whites at 57 29 and guess how that breaks down politically well if you're a republican 74 percent are against special privileges for ethnic groups in university admissions and as opposed to republicans or leaning sorry democrats or leaning democrats 29 percent so republicans 74 democrats 29 there we go Significant overall number of people kind of agreeing with the, uh, with the Supreme Court with the way that's panned out by the looks of it. So, hmm. What do you think, dear listener? 
it's one of those things here in Australia, we don't really have a a hell of a lot of racial bias going on here. Like mm. We do have a relatively different coloured face and that sort of stuff around the country. Mm. You know, it's just one of those things. You know, I thought about it just recently. I went into a shop and that sort of stuff and there was a whole group of people in front of me. I was the only white fella. <laughs> so, you know, mm. you know, it's just. Where was that? It was up in Rocky. Okay. Yep. Yeah. I was the only white fella fella going in the shop. My only experience of discrimination in the university sector would be my son, Leon, who did very well at high school and was school vice captain. He got a full scholarship at QUT Mm. and a friend of mine who works in QUT said a factor in his favour would have been that he was from a, a, a public high school and that they would actually take that into account, his results and his achievements, and him coming from a, the Gap High School as opposed to a private school would have been in his favour as one of the considerations they use when handing out scholarships. Scholarships, yeah, well, that yes. makes sense. Yeah, so... Uh, anyway, that's a little anecdote there. I was going to say, I think the hex is probably disproportionately a burden on the poor. Mm. In I, theory, I, you don't need a wealthy parent because you can just take the loan. Well, exactly. But, but the loan can be so big that you could be discouraged from doing it in the first place if you really thought about it hard. And, and also, yeah. It, you're shackling yourself with debt, whereas a rich kid effectively doesn't go, doesn't come out of university with that debt. Potentially, yeah. If That's assuming your parents are prepared to pay it. Mm-hmm. Yep. And not all Mine day. weren't. So, mm. you know, I ended up with the hex debt. Yeah, yeah, but your hex debt is probably considerably less. Oh, it's a considerably less compared to what they're charging now. It was, it was considerably less, you know, mm. and I paid it off relatively quickly. Mm-hmm. Mm. Final topic, dear listener, before we finish, Calvary Hospital in the ACT. Joe, we've had this on the agenda kind of for a little while, waiting have, for the right moment. Have we not already talked about it? No, I don't think we have. Okay. It got bounced off and on and back on. And anyway, I found an article from Crikey, which was interesting about Calvary Hospital. So basically the ACT government decided to forcibly acquire the Catholic-owned Calvary Hospital. No, not what I understand. My Mm. understanding was it was an ACT-owned hospital that was outsourced to the Catholics to run. Right. And they have compulsorily purchased... The leaseback. The leaseback. So rather than the ownership, it was the leaseback. Correct. That, that's probably correct. Yes, that, that's a more accurate description where they may not have owned the – but then the all, property, all property in the ACT is leased. Oh, that's leased. true. Correct. But my understanding yeah. was that – This was a 25-year lease. This was an outsourcing. Yes. Okay. They had some sort of rights to run a hospital. Yes. Which the government said, we don't care what you want, we're taking it off you. Mm-hmm. The background is – that it was being run by a group called the Little Company of Mary Sisters, LCM. 
And there was an ACT Auditor General's Performance Audit Report in 2008. And as a result of that, both the little company of Mary's sisters and the ACT government agreed that the, the Mary sisters should get out of this hospital and instead they could operate a recently opened Canberra hospice and, and there would be $68 million in compensation as part of the deal. Unfortunately, the ACT public would not agree to the deal somehow. I don't know how that came about. And the Vatican, hearing about it, said, we don't want to lose a hospital that we're operating. So they basically took control of, of that asset and said, well, it doesn't actually belong to the little company of Mary's sisters anymore. It's now a, a Vatican asset. And we don't agree with any of this, if you like, resumption of the hospital. And in any event, it looks like the ACT is going ahead with the forcible recovery of the hospital and that compensation will be paid. And the, the sort of the writer of the article was saying that really the little sort of company of Mary's sisters, this sort of modern nuns who are interested in healthcare, it's not suitable for them to run a proper hospital that encompasses all of hospital services. And for the sort of... Including abortions. Yes. And for the sort of stuff that they would be interested in and would want to do, they should be involved in sort of end-of-life care for people who don't want to take voluntary assisted dying. That's where their interest would be and that they would be suited to. And that's where they wanted to end up and where the government wanted to end up, but the Vatican stepping in, taking control of the hospital and saying, no, all deals so, are off. Sorry, you're saying the Vatican are trying to run people's lives? Yes. That sounds out of character for them. Yeah. So that was the sort of the flavour of the article, if you like, about what's happened in that hospital. So, look, the little company of Mary Sisters might end up acquiring a little hospice somewhere and getting a big compensation payment or the Catholic Church might end up getting the big compensation payment. More likely. Mm. So that's a bit of a messy one but an interesting one nonetheless. And maybe in the future there'll be a whole range of hospitals that will be acquired by governments, as they say. We what the hell are we doing having religions running our hospitals? Mm -hmm. These are and, essential services. And schools. And care services and... Time and villages and, uh, yes. We can only hope, Joe. Mm-hmm. Well, this must have already happened because there was a picture on Facebook that was put on though by the Satanic Temple. There was a picture of a crane removing the cross from the whole thing. I don't know what that Anyways. was. don't know. Yeah. Right. That's enough. That's all the topics I'm going to get through. 838. Eight years down. I don't know how many more to go. <laughs> yeah. What else are we going to do on a Tuesday night? Just a bunch of old white men yeah. shouting at the world. Getting older every year. Yeah, I'm starting to feel old actually. So anyway. Yeah. yeah. 
We talked about our medical ailments before Ailments, the show. Yeah. We've got mm. that out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we'll be back next week with some more topics of some sort. Stay tuned. Join us then. We'll be back then. We'll talk to you later. Bye for now. And it's a good night from me. And it's a good night from him. Good night.